0: Good morning everyone, remain standing with me, and uh, we're going to be in a couple different chapters, but in the book of Acts, so open up to the book of Acts, and uh, my name is Janet, it's great to see you here, I'm psyched, I'm a football fan, so it's Super Bowl Sunday, i got my wings ready to go on the grill, Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19 through 26, and then we're going to flip over to chapter 13 and look at verses 1 through 3, I'll give you a second to get there. All right, here we go. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a large number of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The, excuse me, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now we jump over to chapter 13, verse 1. Now the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on him, they sent them off. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, one of the like great privileges that I have is uh, I get to interact with these guys all the time. It's we, like we get to talk about like what God's doing in our churches and how we've been an encouragement to each other along the way, and how our churches have been encouragement to uh, each other along the way. And I, I wanted, I, I reached out to these guys. This, this is not the whole list, but at a certain point, you know, you either have to preach a sermon or show a video. And I didn't want to just show a video. Uh, but this is just a small sampling of some of the impact that you all have had by being part of our church family in our surrounding region since planting Red Hill in two thousand and fifteen we 've been privileged to like house and send out two church plants that we had in house with us sent out and sent people with them that 's Nick who you saw at uh, New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, and Jacob uh, Gobel, who planted Rooted Community Church in Lebanon, Illinois, with McKenzie. And then we have two other churches that we've served as the sending church for. They didn't do any residency with us or anything like that, but it means that um, for seven years plus that we've existed, we've had four church plants that, uh, and I, I just want to give honor where honor is due, that uh, a lot of responsibility and burden has fallen on Carrie to manage donations that come in from around the whole country and have to be diverted to one of five different places, not counting the different specific funds like a building fund or a mission team fund that we've had at Red Hill, and to be able to offer administrative support and encouragement and coaching for these young church plants as they set themselves up and begin incorporating and getting a bank account. And so I just want to give honor to Carrie, who's provided a lot of back-end support, but you all, uh, by giving tithes and offerings. Not only do you directly support these church plants and others, but you also fund the salary that allows us as a church to provide that kind of administrative support. So everything that happens in these churches that you've seen and in others, you're actually part of the story. You know, you're part of the story at New City Church in Champaign-Urbana where Nick and Aaron Volkening have planted a church that's reaching college students on the University of Illinois' campus and reaching the community of Champaign-Urbana, seeing people saved, seeing leaders Multiplied and sent out all over the world. You are part of the story in Rooted Community Church where Jacob and Mackenzie, along with a small team of people that we sent, are establishing a brand new work in a community where there's not any new works that are happening and there are very few gospel-centered churches that exist. You're part of the work that Bella Faye Johnson does at Purpose Church in Mascuda, where an African-American family has planted in a majority white community and is doing the hard work of racial reconciliation and bringing together a community that um, has a history of bringing races together, but also doesn't have a lot of present-day activity on that front you're part of the work that's happening at Redemption Community Church, which we were able to send out in Belleville, Illinois. And uh, having experienced lots of traumas We've been able to provide care and coaching for their elders and their pastors. We've been able to be a source of encouragement for them along the way, seeing people saved and leaders multiplied in Belleville. You're part of the story at Faith Community Bible Church, which started next door to a barber shop. That barber shop one day uh, was uh, the victim of a, a, a violent attack where people were shot, several people were shot. That church did children's ministry in that barber shop, And uh, eventually God provided a building for them to be able to move into. You're part of the story of the work that's happening in a place that is incredibly difficult and dangerous. You're part of the story of Mike and Tracy Bird and their family as they are the leading edge, the knife's edge of the gospel in a difficult and dangerous place. You're part of the gospel story that is going on in so many different places uh, like Mount Vernon and Illinois, where Dustin Hale and his wife Sarah planted Gateway Church. We were their sending church. We are their sending church from the beginning, he said, and uh, uh, that's, you know, it's, I, it's easier to be a sending church after they've already gone, I guess, you know, so it's good that we were that in the beginning, and um, what I think is really amazing is uh, that we've done all of this since 2015, participated in all these plants, encouraged all these planters and their families, and in that time, we've not ever had a single year where we have averaged more than 100 people in worship attendance. We, we've not been a huge church with too much money and too much horsepower. We've just, we've just been a church that I like the way that Derek Taylor said it because it's what I really want to be true. That the value of sending is not something that lives on a page. It's not something that lives on a wall or in a frame. It's something that lives in our own hearts. It lives in our chest. It's something that's important to us, and anything that is valuable means that it has value. Anything of value that you possess or that you want to get means you have to pay something for it. You have to be willing to sacrifice something for it. You have to be willing to go for it. And I want you to know that Red Hill is a church that absolutely has a local assignment, but we have a global responsibility, we have a local assignment, but we have a global responsibility. We we are the light of the world. We're not the only light of the world, but we are the light of the world, and we have a responsibility to live with an open hand. I remember vividly getting the honor of getting to preach at the one-year anniversary uh, like of uh, Redemption Community Church, and to like... Offer like this closing statement for them. And it's one of the only times I've been booed as a preacher. Like the response, the response was not, I don't think I was clear in what I was trying to say because it's their one year anniversary. Uh, and, and at their one year anniversary, I stood up and said, Redemption Community Church is not going to last forever. Like you won't always be in existence. And they were like, boo, like no, like yes, we will. And, and here's the truth there's one church that's going to last forever, Jesus Christ is its head. It'll exist in eternity forever. Someday there will no longer be a need for a bunch of local churches to be gospel witnesses because his kingdom will come and his will will be done. And at that time, if it lasts that long, Red Hill will no longer exist. I can tell you that all of the pastors that pastored in, did I say that wrong? No. What? What? Oh yeah, boo, thank you, Brooke, thank you. This is the second time I've been booed. All right, I'm on a roll now, I'm on a hot streak. Yeah, I I can tell you like with just like the, the absolute truth is this. The pastors that you read about in the Bible are better pastors than what you have. They knew Jesus, like they actually met the guy, a lot of them. They hung out with him, they were discipled by him, they had a close walk with him, they got to see him do miracles, They were incredible pastors. Not a single one of the local churches mentioned in the New Testament still exists as a local church today. And had they not been sending churches, there wouldn't be any churches left. Over and 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 over again, the story of the gospel moving forward is this story. Followers of Jesus start following closer. They grow in their maturity. The Spirit of God moves upon them and speaks to them and says, you know, there are still some people who haven't heard. And we have to do something about that. And here are the people that need to go. And then those people go. And they have varying rates of success. Some of them go to hard places with hard people to dangerous places and they see no one come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. But fruitfulness, salvation, that's not the work of God's people, that's the work of God. Going and proclaiming, that's the work of God's people. We go and we share. And we leave the results in God's hands. Over and over and over and over and over again, this has been the story of how the gospel goes forward. Every generation could be the last generation of Christianity. Every single one. It's the responsibility of every living generation to pass the baton of the gospel to the next one. I have people, I'm considered somewhat of an expert in church planting. I don't say that boastfully. I say that honestly because I've had positions of authority and I have experience in doing it and I have experience in coaching other people to do it. That doesn't actually mean I'm an expert. It just means I'm considered one. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, they will ask me stuff, and then on the spot, I will make up an answer. Usually, it's somewhat informed, but sometimes it's just a guess, you know what I mean? Like, and, and don't pretend like you don't do the same thing in whatever profession you're in. You're like, well, I can give you an answer, and I'm going to say it with absolute confidence because I want you to keep asking me questions because it makes me feel good. You know, I'm, I'm considered a bit of an expert, and here's one of the most common questions that I get. From churches that don't do any planting, every time I speak about planting and what God's done at Red Hill, the question I get is this, how can we lead our church to become a church planting church? That's like, first of all, that's such a good question. Just by asking that question, you are already on the path of doing it. Just by asking that question. It's like, it's like saying, it's like getting up in the morning and saying, Jesus, I don't know how to love you today. I don't know how to follow you today. Will you help me love you and follow you today? You are already on the path of loving and following him. When you start asking questions like, how do we become a church planting church? You're already on the path to becoming a church planting church. So that's my first response. And my second response is to ask just one simple question that I think we need to start asking at Red Hill. Where's the gospel not gaining ground around us? In what communities Can we look, like, what are the communities that are within the shadow of Red Hill? What are the communities that are near to us that we say, you know, we just don't see God working in that community? And then we just begin praying. God, would you do something in that community? Because when we pray, you should know, you should know. If you missed our series on prayer, you should know. When we pray, we're not just inviting God to do something. We're asking God to invite us to do something, to participate with him. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. How is it that the kingdom of God comes and the will of God is done in time? Like in time, in actual, in the present. How is it done? And the answer is very simple through the people of god that's how his kingdom comes that's how his will is done he does it through people if i were smarter than god i would say there's probably a more reliable method than people because we are supremely unreliable the only thing that we know about ourselves is that we are not to be counted on you know what i'm saying how that how's that new year's resolution working guys You're already looking forward to 2024 when you can fail again, just like me, right? You just keep failing forward. That's the key. We have this value that says send the best. The goal for us is to work this value into every aspect of the life and being and body of our church. That says that we can honestly say to one another, we can say to our dearest friends, we can say to our best leaders, we can say to our own spouses and our own children, you don't belong to me. We belong to the Lord. We belong to him. And he can send us anywhere he wants to send us. Now, one small disclaimer. I don't think God is going to be sending your spouse somewhere without you for a prolonged assignment. Just I want to be clear about that. But I do want to say that that person who is your husband or your wife, that person who is your son or your daughter, they are first the person that belongs to Jesus. They belong first to him. And by God's grace, given for a short time into your hands. The truth about life is this. Here's the truth. That time is going to teach you one lesson if it doesn't teach you anything else. This is so important. It's going to teach you one lesson if it doesn't teach you anything else. It's going to teach you how to let go of the things that you love. Because they don't belong to you and they can't be kept by you. You get to enjoy them for what feels like a painfully brief window. Time will teach you how to let go. It will force you to learn how to let go. You can either have things ripped from your hands or with great joy you can think ahead and say I want to prepare them and then I want to send them. So we have here in Acts chapter 11 a really interesting moment in the history of the church. Up until this moment in history the church has lived in Jerusalem. You'll remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit's gonna come on you, and then, boom, you're gonna go and be my witnesses. By the way, the Greek word for witness is martyr. Jesus says, You're gonna go out to the whole world and die in a whole bunch of places, you know, and that's basically what actually happened to a lot of these guys. They actually did give their lives for the sake of the gospel, but in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, you're going to go. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go to the ends of the earth, and the gospel stays in Jerusalem. It just stays right there, but we see in verse 19, this, Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Antioch is roughly 300 miles north of Jerusalem. For reference, that's further away than Chicago is from us. And I want you to imagine a scenario where persecution broke out against you as a follower of Jesus so severely that you had to put everything you owned in backpacks and on the back of your dog or your cat, whatever animals you possess in your home, you've had to pack them up, you had to take your children and on foot had to travel from here north of Chicago. Figuring out how to feed your family, figuring out where you're going to get money from How you're going to care for your family and your friends and your own self, how you're going to stay safe along the way, because there's a whole lot of us that are traveling and we're pretty soft targets if you know what I'm saying. That's what happened to the followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is this really long chapter. Whenever I was a younger pastor, I was preaching through the book of Acts and I made the bold and foolish decision to preach the whole seventh chapter of Acts in one sermon. It's such a long chapter. It's the whole, it's literally Stephen's sermon and it's the whole history of the Jewish people all the way up to the crucifixion of Jesus and it ends at the end of chapter seven, it ends with everybody who's there getting so ticked off at Stephen who by the way was just a deacon in his local church They get so mad at him for what he says, they pick up rocks and throw rocks at him until he dies. And it says that his face became like the face of an angel. And then in chapter 8 and verse 1, it says that a severe persecution broke out against the followers of Jesus, and they're scattered. Here we see in chapter 11, they're thrown as far as 300 miles north of Jerusalem. These people, homeless nomads, forced from their own place of residence and worship simply because they loved Jesus, scattered all the way 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Persecution was the catalyst for mission. Can I tell you what I think is a dirty little secret of the Bible? If God's people won't willingly go, then God will squeeze them until they are forced to go. It's all the way back in the very first commands in creation. I want you to multiply and scattered. Just go. Cover the face of the earth and subdue it. We have a responsibility. But all the way up, even through Acts eleven nineteen, 19, the gospel is still bound by ethnicity. It's being preached only to Jews. And then, and then, verse 20 and 21 happen. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. Excuse me, preaching, speaking to the Greeks, also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. There were some men with them from Cyprus and Cyrene, and it's like they didn't know for sure Uh, No one had told them, you're not allowed to tell non-Jewish people about Jesus. You're not supposed to do that kind of a thing. And it reminds me of uh, my buddy Rusty's church where they have a myriad of really strange problems. The number of fights that he has broken up in the parking lot of his church would astound you like people actually fist fighting in the parking lot of his church. Something like 90% of his church has never had another church home. There was a group of men who found out that there was an abused uh, wife that had been coming to church and when she would come to church, her husband would then beat her, they found out. And and so the next week they came in and met with Rusty and informed him of this and he was like, okay, well, we're we're gonna take action on this. And they said, don't worry about it, we already took care of it. And he's like, tell me what you mean he's like well we went and paid the husband a visit this is in rural oklahoma okay it's a different it's a different world and I, and, and rusty was like what, what like i need to know what happened and they said well we just went and we told him we're just barely saved <laughs> and if you lay a hand on her ever again we're not calling the police we're coming back to visit you like, we're just, I just love the line, we're just barely saved. Like, we just, we just got in. Like, we're, like, that's, that's the line, and we're just, like, right here. Like, you know, just the simplest little push, and we, like, the flesh is still real accessible. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's still right there. I'm not advocating that we take that type of a stance. If we find out about abuse, I'm calling the police, and you can work it out with them, okay, just for full disclosure. But I am saying this. I would rather deal with problems like that than problems where no one far from the Lord is ever having to encounter what it looks like now to follow Jesus. And none of us are ever having to deal with the messiness of real life with real people. Life is really messy. It's really difficult. My favorite kind of people are the people who just go for it. Like, I'm just going to try. What's the worst that happens? I fail? You know how many times I've failed? Like that's a big deal. I failed a billion times. I'm not afraid of failing. Church grows when and only when the good news about the Lord Jesus is proclaimed. That's what happened. These guys just show up and just start saying, we've heard some good news about Jesus. Rumor was the angel said that it was for all the people, not just for all the Jewish people. So we're just going to start telling everybody. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I would bet my very life there are people that you know that would willingly give their lives to Jesus. They would willingly surrender to the lordship of Jesus. They would willingly embrace the forgiveness of sin if they just knew that the message was for them too. If just somebody would tell them that there's good news, there's good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners among whom I am the worst Revival and awakening, by the way, revival and awakening. There's a revival or an awakening that's going on at Asbury, uh, Asbury Seminary. It's like, I don't know, several, I don't remember how many days in that people have been in the chapel worshiping and praying and God's doing this incredible work. And if you go on to Twitter, first of all, don't, but if you go on to Twitter and you look at it, what you find is like all of these people that are like, yeah, this is manufactured, this isn't real, or we'll see. Like I saw one guy who posted and he said, we'll know it's really a revival if everybody shows up at their local church on Sunday morning. Hey, let me tell you something. If God starts moving at the YMCA and we're all at the YMCA and God is doing incredible work at the YMCA, somebody else can preach at Red Hill. I'm gonna stay where the presence of the Lord is. You know what I'm saying? I wanna be in his presence He's better than you all are, and he's definitely better than I am. I want to be in his presence. Revival and awakening happen only when the Lord's hand is with us. That's what happened here in verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them. These guys go out, and they just start sharing the good news. How much of the Bible do you think these non-Jewish people actually knew? How much of the story of Jesus did these people actually know? The best testimony in the whole Bible is the blind guy who's healed. And they're like, tell us about the guy who healed you. And he says, I didn't really know much about him. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. That's all it takes for us. The only story that you need to know is Jesus Christ has changed my life. And I can tell you some specific ways that he's made a difference in my life. And I believe he can make that difference in your life. These guys just show up. and They don't know they're not supposed to do this. So they just start telling everybody about the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand is with them. With marketing and polish and charisma, you can draw a crowd. But only Jesus can save a soul. There's not something that you and I can do. That can force Jesus to put his hand upon us. You know, right now, our church is in the process of buying a building. But make no mistake, buildings don't save people. Yeah. Having a really cool environment isn't going to save anybody. So I just like just a small caveat, because this is important for us to talk about and to know. Why do it then? It's a fair question, like, if buildings don't save people? Why would we want to do it? And so I just want to talk through a few reasons really quickly. Number one, to the world, the church is a building. For us, our our team, like our worship and uh, myself and and some of the media folks, we meet for a pre-service meeting. And Stephen this morning was praying and he was saying, you know, we know that this place isn't the church. Your gathered people are the church. We understand that. But those who don't know the Lord don't understand that. They don't understand. They think that the church is a building. They think about going to church, not being the church. When they think about going to church, they don't think about going to the people of God. They think about going to a physical location. So it's helpful for them to have a physical location to identify with. Our size here is limited. We can have one service. There's a small area to put up chairs. We have one kid's room weekly and another kid's room once a month. Our opportunities for large group discipleship, Are limited. We have a lot of ideas about gospel practices and things that we want to do to invest in the people of God and in our community to help them learn how to follow Jesus. Our creativity, our margin, and our volunteers are tied up in maintenance instead of progress. We're spending time being creative about maintenance being creative about solving problems that we encounter week after week after week after week. And in addition to all of that, we have two other huge factors. These two factors outweigh all the others in my opinion. The first one's this. Our elders and wives have been fasting and praying about this and seeking God about this for years. And we believe that God is leading us to take this step of faith. And I wanna tell you, like can I tell you one dirty little secret about ministry? I wanna share with you the hardest thing for any pastor to preach about to his people, the single hardest verse in the Bible, the most difficult verse in the Bible, the one that you will hear the least over the course of your time in any local church is Hebrews 13, 17, which says that you should honor and obey the leaders that God puts in your life. You know why that's so hard? Is because I'm the leader that God has put in your life, and I have a mirror. So, like, I know my weaknesses, my faults, and my failures, and inside of me, even in this moment, is this rising level of anxiety and fear and and the, the enemy whispering condemnation to me that I'm not worthy of being followed, and I just want to affirm what the enemy is saying about me. I am not worthy of being followed. If you're looking for someone worthy of being followed, look to Jesus. There isn't anybody else worthy of being followed. There are those who you can say, I want to imitate them as they are imitating Jesus. The truth is, me included, I am to submit myself to the leaders of our church, and I do regularly. Me, Stephen, and Josh are your elders, and I can tell you that all three of us are wildly different in our personalities, wildly different in our approaches, wildly different in the things that concern us, wildly different in the things that we will say yes to, and the things that we say no to. And I wanna say that the three of us are convicted That we're following Jesus. That others, all of you, have a responsibility to listen to Jesus, to speak, to move, and to act in obedience to Jesus. And then when our church decides to do something together, to rally together, to enjoy the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And uh, I'm just gonna read what I wrote. If you don't trust your pastor's leadership, you should talk with them and tell them, I don't trust your leadership. N- nothing has happened, okay? I just I like, I like want to be really clear. Nothing has happened. This isn't passive-aggressive aimed at somebody. This is just something that I've felt convicted to share. If you don't trust your pastor's leadership, you should talk with them. And if that doesn't resolve it, you should go and find a pastor that you want to follow. Find a group of elders that you trust and that you want to follow. Okay. When I was at my previous church, one Sunday morning I got up and and we were in the midst of like casting this big vision and we had a lot of pushback. Like the number of anonymous letters that got left on my on my desk during that process. Eventually I held the last one up, the last one I ever got. I held it up and I was like, I don't know what it says. I didn't read it. I brought a trash can on stage and I threw it in the trash in front of the church. I was like, if you don't sign it, I don't read it. That's the new rule at our church Just threw it in the trash. And I was like, now I'm gonna preach, all right? Like uh, just now, now I'm gonna go forward. And I was like, if you don't like what's happening here and we had an auditorium that seated about 350 people and there were like maybe 85 people in the room. It's like, if you don't, have, if you don't like what's happening here, then we'll give your seat to a lost person who needs to hear about Jesus. And I'm not kidding. People were doing this. They were like, there are still a lot of spaces available for lost people. Like there's a lot of room available. I was uh, younger then and more foolish then and more brash then. (sighs) There were some older people who came and met with me and told me some of their concerns and things that they didn't like. And then they left our church and joined a church that they enjoyed. And being older now and looking back on that, they really honored me by doing that by walking through that process with me. And my sincere hope for them is that they are full of joy as they follow Jesus and the pastors that God has provided for them. It's just the mission that we have is too important for us to be divided about anything. It's just too important. We have to keep moving forward because there are still people who need to hear Jesus and the central defining apologetic for whether or not we are followers of Jesus is the way that we love and interact with each other. It's so important for us. It matters so much. The second thing is this. I have this dream that someday, uh, this like may feel a little morbid, but someday, uh, for my wife's benefit, long in the future, like 100 years from now, like Methuselah time. I, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be in heaven with Jesus forever. And Red Hill is gonna be here. That someday like my great grandkids might move to Edwardsville long after I've died and Glen Carbon and go to Red Hill Church. I just think that'd be amazing. And I, I wanna see our little church plant throw down some roots in our community that can last for a few generations. It's not gonna last forever. Someday, the story of Red Hill Church will come to a close. But I wanna do everything I can as your pastor, leading and following the elders. I wanna do everything I can. I want us to do everything we can to say we wanna establish something that our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids and generations that we'll never know that that will be here to share the gospel with them. Okay, back to the text. News travels back to Jerusalem, 300 miles without phones, without email, without social media, which means, of course, revival's breaking out and word is spreading. That's, you know, the best marketing for a local church is when God just starts moving in the hearts and lives of the people. That's the the best thing that can happen as far as marketing goes for a local church. It says news about them, in verse 22, reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas. News travels back, and they sent out Barnabas. Barnabas, other than Jesus, okay, all right, other than Jesus... Barnabas is probably my favorite character in the whole Bible because he's the one that I feel like like I want to be like Barnabas. He was wise, he was generous, and he was an encourager. And I love this. Something strange is happening in Antioch. Greeks and Jews are hearing the gospel and responding, and word travels back to the mothership, because up until this time, in fact, up until Acts 13, 1 through 3, which we'll get to in just a moment, up until this time, Jerusalem was the center of Christianity, This is where the hub was. This is where the apostles were. This is where the decisions were made. This is where the Jerusalem council met to decide fully and finally whether or not you had to become Jewish in order to become a follower of Jesus, in order to be saved. News travels back to them. And who do they send to investigate? They send an encourager. I just love that. I love that. I spent so many years in youth ministry and youth ministry is awesome. It is the most fun I've ever had in ministry is in youth ministry because anything can happen and it usually does. We were on a youth trip once and something like somebody threw a bottle it hit just a water bottle, a plastic water bottle, and it just connected just right with this girl named Becky Jollof, and I still remember, it hit her right in the forehead, right above her eyeball, and and immediately, like a golf ball-sized knot formed on her forehead, and her best friend started laughing so hard that she peed her pants. (laughs) Then, when we got to the gas station, her friends formed a circle around her and walked her to the bathroom like this, right? Teenagers will give their lives to missions. They will give their lives to ministry. They will surrender all the money in their pockets. I was in Mexico once. We were working with an orphanage. A young man had a 1 million peso coin that his grandfather had given him. The only possession that his grandfather had left to him was this coin and he came up and he put that coin in the offering for the orphanage and a man came up to his mom after the service and said I want to give the equivalent so that he can have that coin and his mom being full of wisdom said don't you dare take away the significance of the sacrifice he just made he'll never forget what he did today for the rest of his life it will be with him I loved youth ministry but you know what I hated coming back from anything as a youth pastor because the most consistent message was it's not going to last and it's not real. Now, let me tell you something. If you try a new thing and you enjoy it and you go to all your friends and you go, I tried this new thing and it was so much fun and every one of them goes, you'll never keep it up. It's never going to work. It's never going to last. What do you think happens to it? Let's let a spirit of encouragement live inside of us when we see God beginning to do something in someone. I just love that these guys sent Barnabas. By the way, the church in Jerusalem probably really enjoyed having Barnabas around. But the gospel was going over here, and so they sent Barnabas. Barnabas, go up there and check it out and what's going on. When we hear that God's moving Let's make sure we send wise, generous encouragers. Let's let the devil be the critical accuser. The devil will think critically about everything that God is doing in the world. Let's think encouragingly about it. And something can start off on the wrong foot and get to the right foot. What's the thing in your life that you started off and immediately were world-class good at it? Doesn't everything take practice? Doesn't everything take time? And isn't everything that requires effort improved when people come around you and say, I believe in you, you're doing great, don't give up. You had a setback, That's not the end of the story, it's part of the story. Now you get to come back. And then Barnabas just does what Barnabas does. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And Barnabas gets there. It says, when he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. He just did his thing. Remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. That's really good counsel. Just remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. I think Barnabas is like, wow, I did not expect to see so many non-Jewish people here responding to the good news about the Lord Jesus. And I think he probably was like, I'm assuming that the Lord Jesus can handle this. And I feel like if he didn't want these people to become Christians, he probably could have stopped that from happening, seeing as how he is the author and perfecter of our faith. I think that's what the Bible says. That was yet to be written for Barnabas, but still, he probably knew it. I'm just saying, he probably knew it. Encouragement throws gas on the fire. Encouragement might not light the fire, but it throws gas on the fire. Just find the good, right? Find the good and encourage the good. That's what Barnabas did. And then Barnabas does what Barnabas does. It says, then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. You remember Saul, Acts chapter 9? He was the chief persecutor of the local church, dragging him off in chains, putting him to death, killing him. I mean, he was like the arch enemy of the church. He was the guy that had been like self-designated, the guy that's going to eradicate Christianity. Isn't it so great, the way that God works in a person's life? You might be here this morning and be like, you don't know what I've done. My simple response would be, have you murdered a whole bunch of Christians just because they were Christians? Because God once took a guy that had done that and turned him into the greatest missionary who ever lived. So if you're not that bad, chances are good God could still work with you too. So Barnabas goes to Tarsus to search for Saul. I just, I just really, I don't know why for sure. I just really like that. I, I just really like that Barnabas is there. He's a capable teacher himself. But he sees an opportunity for somebody else to be involved in what God is doing. And he goes and he gets him. Come be involved in what God is doing. There's something to that, isn't there? What happens if Barnabas never goes to get Saul? Just for a second, let your mind ask the question. This guy who becomes the Apostle Paul, who plants most of the churches that are found in the New Testament, who writes most of the New Testament, who makes more disciples, generates more leaders, and authors more of the New Testament word of God than any other person. The journey began in Acts chapter 9 when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. But it took, it, first, it took its first step in Acts chapter 11 when Barnabas went and sought him out and brought him back. It says when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year They met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Barnabas goes and he finds Saul and he finds Paul. And for a whole year, they teach. For a whole year. Um, By the way, when God starts moving, leaders who can make disciples are needed. You want to know the worst thing that could happen to Red Hill Church? Like the worst thing that could happen to us right now is if a thousand people said, I want to give my life to Jesus and follow Jesus with you at Red Hill Church. You know why? Because right now, we have how many gospel communities, Stephen? We have five gospel communities right now. You know why? Because we have five people willing to lead gospel communities. If we have 1,000 people give their lives to Jesus, we are in serious trouble. We're going to be in some serious trouble because we have yet to have more people step up and say, I'll embrace responsibility. I just, I'll help. And uh, those of you who are there like, well, I would help, but I won't be any good at it. Have you been to my GC? You don't have to be good at it. You just have to try. God can do it a lot, he can do a lot with try. For a whole year, for a whole year. Imagine if in 2016 we had been like, all right guys, We're done teaching you. Because like we read in the Bible like a whole year, three whole years, like he stayed in Ephesus. Paul stayed in Ephesus for three years. We're like, whoa. He stayed there so long. We have existed for seven plus years. We've been teaching for seven plus years. Some of you are like, I haven't been here that long. right? You're not off the hook because you've probably been somewhere. Okay? What I'm saying is, Following Jesus is about more than the collection of information and attendance at meetings. It's more than that. It's about taking what you have been given, not just by me, but by the Spirit, out into a community and proclaiming the good news. There's good news. I was blind, now I see. I was a really angry kid on a path to being a really angry person controlled by my emotions when Jesus met me and saved me and transformed my life. He changed me. My story is that simple. You have your own story. If you don't have your own story yet, please come and talk to me during the response time. I'll help you give your life to Jesus. I'll walk with you across that line. And then I just love this. This in Antioch. This is where followers of Jesus are first called Christians. It's a Greek compound word, and it was like a nickname, Little Jesuses. They didn't give it to themselves. It was given to them by their community. Nicknames are given. Nicknames are not taken. The first time I learned that was when I was in high school. I was on the bus. We were headed to a wrestling tournament. I was, I think I was a junior in high school, and we had a freshman in high school who was on the varsity team. He wasn't that great, but um, he was little. He was the littlest guy on the team, littler even than me, smaller even than me. By my junior year, I was all the way up to 108 pounds, so this guy was tiny at 101, And, and he was on the team because there wasn't anyone else at that weight class, and so he was wrestling, he was doing his best, and we had a heavyweight on our team who was a senior, his name was Jeff and his last name started with Z and Jeff had uh, like a tuft of white hair at the front of his forehead that we used to tell people he had been struck by lightning. We'd tell his opponents, yeah, he got hit by lightning right there. Yeah, his sister was about to be struck and he literally dove in front of her as the lightning struck it, hit him right there, turned his hair white. Um, as a total lie, but you know, it's intimidation, right? And, and Jeff being the biggest guy on the team, a very good wrestler, we called him Z-Man. That was his nickname. We called him Z-Man, and I will never forget when this freshman comes onto the bus. His last name started with V, and he goes up to our coach, who himself was a two-time national uh, champion in wrestling. He comes up to our coach, and he goes, Hey, coach, uh, you know how everybody calls Jeff Z-Man? And coach was like, Yeah? And he goes, Do you think, uh, do you, think you could get everybody to call me V-Man? And Coach Knight goes, how about if we start with (laughs) V-Boy? And then we'll see if you grow into V-Man. And let me tell you something. If I saw Justin today, I would call him V-Boy for the next four years of his life. That's the only thing people called him. You don't get to give yourself a nickname. A nickname is given to you by others, There's a real danger in claiming a nickname for yourself because then others will look at you and go, that is not actually who you are. The only time that you get to give yourself a nickname is when you become a grandparent. Then you get to pick, and all y'all are choosing, not all y'all, some of y'all chose some good ones, but everybody chooses the same one, granddad, grandma, I'm like, I've already told Sarah, I'm like, I'm thinking about Big Papa, like, because when my kids come in, they're like, Big Papa, I can be like, I love it when you call me Big Papa, put your hands in the air, right, I mean, I'm just saying, like, that feels good to me, and a little ironic, so I, the, the wheels are already cranking, Aubrey, Nathan, and Caleb, if you're listening, the wheels are already cranking, I had an idea as I was writing this sermon. And it's, it goes like this. What if we flipped the evangelistic script? This, this is something for us to think about as a church. What if instead of asking other people if they were Christians, what if we asked other people if they thought we were Christians? What if the introduction to sharing our faith with someone was, hey, do you think I'm a Christian? Because then they're going to be like, hmm, well." Whatever answer they give you is a wide open door for the gospel. Yeah, I think you're a Christian because you're a good person. That's interesting. I mean, I appreciate, thank you for that. Thanks for saying that to me. But, you know, what the Bible teaches me is that I'm actually not a good person. And in fact, if you really knew me, you'd know there's a lot of stuff I really struggle with and have failed at. And the way that I have confidence that I'm a Christian. Or if they said to you, well, I I don't think you're a Christian because you do the following things or I don't know, are you a Christian? Because Christian probably is a dangerous nickname for us to give to ourselves. You know, part of membership in a local church is someone else giving you a nickname. It's other people saying to you, yes, I believe you're a follower of Jesus and I wanna work with you so that together we can follow Jesus. That's what membership is. It's at least part of it. What if we ask them? Like, I'm going to ask my neighbors. Like, do you think I'm? Do you think that I'm a Christian? And just see what they say. It feels like, like, okay, like this. Maybe we can figure out how to market this and make some money for our church, so we can support some church planters a little bit better than what we do right now. Probably not though. Um, I want to talk through a couple of questions here. What if your life could be radically transformed? What if God was going to pour out his favor on us, giving us the best pastors in the world, raising up an incredible staff and this army of lay leaders? What if he poured out his favor on us so much that we had more people longing to disciple others? and to encourage others, then we had space for them to do it, and we had people for them to do it in. What if Red Hill exploded with growth Through people being saved, what would we do? This is the exact scenario that the church at Antioch finds itself in. These people have been forced out of their homes, sent to this place far away from where they grew up. All of a sudden, the Lord's hand and God's favor is pouring out on them, and people are being saved. In Acts chapter 13, we discover that there are some phenomenal world-class caliber leaders in the church at Antioch. There are prophets and teachers. Barnabas is there. Simeon, who's called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Menean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul. The dream team has arrived. And now Antioch is going to become the single greatest church in the history of churches. They have the whole package. They have diversity. They have talent. They have... like known sinners whose lives have been radically transformed by Jesus. They have it all. And then what do they do? They just follow Barnabas' advice. They just remain true to the Lord with full hearts, like fully and devoted to the idea that Jesus loves us and that we should draw close to him. They just kept following the same pattern and running the same play. They worshiped, they fasted, they prayed, They listened. And then what happened? The Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after they had fasted and prayed, I guess some more, because they were already fasting and praying, they sent them off. Things were going so well in Antioch. Everything was so good in Antioch. And now we have to send off our encourager, And the best missionary that God ever made, probably the best teacher of the gospel who's ever existed, the Holy Spirit says, send them. And Antioch fasts and prays, the church fasts and prays, puts hands on them, and then sends them. You know, uh, at New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, they have a larger congregation than we do. At Redemption Community Church in Belleville, they have a larger congregation than we do. At Gateway Church in Mount Vernon, they have a larger church than we do. At Faith Community Bible Church in Jennings, they have a larger church than we do. Most of those churches have their own building or have seven-day-a-week access to the building. And all of their success, not all of it, but a big part of it, started when you all, we all together laid hands on them and sent them. One thing that I know for sure is that I want the lives that my children lead to be better than the life that I lead. I want them to have it better than I have it. Here's the truth. If you're conformed into the image of Jesus, then you're going to live sent and you're going to be a sender. Do you know how we know that? because John 3:16 says that God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And God did not send his world into the uh, excuse me, God did not send his son into the world verse 17 says to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved. God sent Jesus, and then in John chapter 20 and verse 21, Jesus gathers his disciples, and he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then those guys raised up leaders, men and women. They gathered churches. They raised up leaders. The Holy Spirit moved upon them. They laid hands on people, and they sent them. And what happened? The gospel began creeping across the face of the globe. Going to every place and every people. And what did Jesus say about his return? That the gospel would go to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and then the end would come. Then he would come. Then he would be done. We might someday be a large church, but that's not our aim. I'm not opposed to being a large church. Large churches are wonderful. I've been a part of large churches that were great and large churches that weren't great. I've been a part of small churches that were great and small churches that weren't great. The goal for us is not numerical advancement. The goal for us, the goal for us is to weave the idea of becoming more and more like Jesus into every fiber of our being and into the DNA of our existence as a church. And if we do that, we will be missionary people because we have a missionary God. Who in the very beginning, in the very beginning, when sin entered the picture, did not stay far off and wait for sinners to get themselves figured out, but came to the sinners. God is the, he's the original sender. He sent himself to Adam and Eve into the garden, even today, he continues to send. All right, so a few principles for us about sending at Red Hill, and then we'll land this whole plane. The first one's this, Jesus sends us all. Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. You, follower of Jesus, you are a witness for Jesus. I'm not saying you're a faithful witness or a good witness. I don't know, but you are a witness. You're a witness for him. Paul said to the church in Corinth, it is as though God is making His very appeal through you. Jesus sends us all. I think it's Spurgeon who said that every Christian is either a missionary or an impostor. Number two, I already said this: we have a local assignment with global implications. We're going to Guatemala this summer. Why? Because there are lost people in Guatemala. There are churches in Guatemala that we're going to partner with who are trying to reach the lost people. And what are we going to do? We're going to go and we're going to encourage them and we're going to try to pour gas on the fire of what they're doing. It's going to be awesome. You should go. Maturity is marked by responsibility. Maturity is not marked by freedom. Toddlers are free. They do whatever they want to do. It's like a tornado of chaos everywhere they go. And parents are just like trying to go like, no, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. What maturity looks like is the embracing of responsibility. Husbands who are mature embrace the responsibility of loving and caring for their wives. Wives who are mature embrace the responsibility of loving and caring for their husbands. Couples embrace the responsibility of caring for their church and for their family and for their friends. Individuals embrace the responsibilities of friendship. Maturity says I can handle more than what I'm doing right now. I want more. God, give me more than what I'm doing right now. I'll be faithful with little if you give me more. I'll try to be faithful with that too. Jesus himself took on the sins of the world. He embraced responsibility for the sins of all mankind. He is the most mature who's ever lived. And if we become like him, then we will become like him. Number three, uh, Antioch, in my notes I have the greater than sign, Antioch over Babel. In Antioch, you had all these great people all gathered together, all in this one place, and they said, rather than stay here and just build one church, we're going to go ahead, lay hands on you guys, and send you out to start churches everywhere. Try and cover the whole face of the globe. And later Paul would say, I've shared the gospel with everybody in Asia. That's an accomplishment. I don't care what generation you were alive in. I don't care what time period you live through. If you can say, everybody in Asia has heard the gospel because of my work, and where did that all start? It started with Saul back in Tarsus, being found by Barnabas, being brought to Antioch, teaching them, and then the church at Antioch saying, you guys have an assignment from the Holy Spirit. We bless you. We support you. Go get them. Babel is where mankind gathered together in rebellion against God's command to cover the face of the earth, to spread out, and to go. They said, we will stay and we will make a name for ourselves. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Choose your own adventure. Make a name for yourself or make much of the name above all names. Number four, sending has a price tag. It's a sacrifice. Nick referenced it in uh, his like short video clip. We sent six people and it cost us something. We have to grow our capacity to send as a church. We have, to grow our, we have to grow our capacity to bless other people going to serve other people. It's hard for us. Like we get into a gospel community that's good and we're like, this is good. I don't want it to ever change. We become every high school yearbook tagline ever, don't ever change. Everybody stay here. Nobody new can come in because I really like this. I've been there I understand the feeling, I resonate with the feeling, and sometimes I even have the feeling. This is good, I don't ever want it to change. The only place that that's going to be realistic is heaven. That's the only place that's going to be realistic. Those are the moments where we have to say, how can we make sure everybody has this? Who do we need to send Because we have some people disconnected from gospel communities. We have some gospel communities that aren't as healthy as other ones, aren't as full as other ones, aren't enjoying it as much as other ones. So we have to increase our horsepower. We have to increase our grit, and we have to increase our love. Our horsepower, reaching people and increasing resources, facilitates generosity and allows us to send more. More people, more resources, more treasure, more talent. There are more people in the Metro East, that still need to hear the gospel. We have had opportunities that we have been unable to fulfill because we just didn't have people. We have, I'm so proud of our church. Like Derek Taylor talked about at NET, some of the videos, like I couldn't show all of the videos, but he said, you guys have sent us worship leaders and mature Christians, and you've sent us instrumentalists, and you've done this and this and this, and the number of times that Red Hill sacrificially said we're going to take our primary worship leader, send them somewhere else, and let somebody who's not as good at it serve our people. It's been phenomenal. And can I tell you the result for our own church, like what that produced in us? Is it produced in us a young lady who has the courage to stand up in front of her church family and lead you in worship at age 16? 17. 17 thank you. Just had a birthday recently, right? Yeah. At age 17 to stand up and lead you. How does that happen? Space is made. How is space made? People go and do stuff in other places and we go, we gotta have somebody do something. Can they do it as well as somebody else did it? I'm guessing that Simeon wasn't as good of a preacher as Paul. I'm guessing that the the guy who was a friend of Herod the Tetrarch wasn't as good of an encourager as Barnabas. But God can do a whole lot with try. Try. He can do a whole lot with try. We have to increase our horsepower because there's only so much that we can do when we only have so much. We have to increase our grit. There are three stages to the work of God according to missionary Hudson Taylor. Three stages to the work of God according to Hudson Taylor. Impossible, difficult, and done. And grit is is what moves impossible to difficult. And the Holy Spirit is what moves difficult to done. To dig in and to say, we will not yield from this value. This one, this one on our list of six values, this is the one that hurts all the other ones are good. Choose to hope. Like, yeah, come on. Let's believe in it together. We, like, God's still working. He's still, have some fun. Come on, that's easy, right? Just do fun stuff. Let's have some fun. Take a risk. I mean, come on. I've jumped out of an airplane and I want to do it again. You know what I'm like? Let's go for it. Push the chips across the table. Take a chance or miss the moment. Like, let's do it. Send the best. Wait, the best? We have to send The best? We have to give away treasure. We have to give away people. I really like my GC leader. I have to let them go start a new GC. I really like Nick Volkening. He's a great worship leader, a good college leader, a great maker of disciples, a thoughtful friend. I have to send him to Champaign Urbana. I mean, he gave us our first intern, he and Aaron and Bennett. We used to come to all of our staff meetings. We called him our youngest intern. Grit makes the impossible difficult, and it positions us to watch the Holy Spirit work through us, to finish it, to move it from difficult to done, relentless. Like one of my prayers for myself is that God would make me someone with grit willing to endure to keep pushing forward it would shock you to discover the number of pastors who quit I want to keep moving forward not just limping forward I want to keep moving forward I want the devil every day that I wake up I want the devil to go oh no Every Sunday morning when Red Hill Church gathers, I want him to go, still? They're still at it? What else can we throw at them? And last is this, love. We have to increase our capacity for love because no amount of sending can compensate for a lack of love. A poverty of love invalidates the effort of hard workers. It disconnects knowledge from those who are needy And it disqualifies the sacrifices of the sincere. And worst of all, it empties existence of all its meaning. Because when you love, you will give everything. Nothing's off limits. The fifth thing, the final thing sending is a response. It's a response. It's a fruit issue. It's not a root issue. The Holy Spirit calls and commands as the church fasts, prays, and listens. The more time that we spend loving and learning Jesus, the more that we will take on his character. I want to look back with you again at Acts chapter 1. Let's flip there. Jesus is speaking with his disciples. The resurrected Lord Jesus is speaking with his disciples, and he says this. Says this, excuse me. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power, dunamis, We get the word dynamite from this. You will receive. You will become a lit stick of dynamite on the inside. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Let's not be a navel-gazing, star-gazing, bunch of do-nothing followers of Jesus. Let's be followers of Jesus who believe his promise that he will give us his spirit. And when you get the spirit, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. If you and I are lacking evangelistic practices, and evangelistic passion, if we are lacking passion for the lost, it is because we are lacking the filling of the Spirit of God. Because what happens over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, and what happens over and over and over and over and over again throughout the history of all Christianity since Jesus came is this. The Holy Spirit fills believers. The Holy Spirit animates their faith. And then those animated, spirit filled believers go. And where do they go? Everywhere God sends them. Everywhere. And what I want you to know is that I really deeply believe that God is going to send some of you, He's going to send you to places. Every time we close our worship gathering, I say the same things. I love you, I love being your pastor. You are sent, and by that I mean be filled with the Spirit because you are a living testimony about what Jesus wants in the world. You are a living example, a living, breathing billboard. It is as if God is making his very appeal through you and through me and through us. And what I want us to be as a church family is a church family that says, we will celebrate those who go. We will honor those who go. We will resource those who go. We will bless those who go. And our expectation is that those of us who walk most closely with Jesus will be the ones whom he calls to send. The best is not the most talented. The best is not the wealthy. The best is not the most careful. Charismatic. The best is not the most successful. The best is not the one with the most Bible knowledge. The best is the one who walks most closely with Jesus and who says of their own volition or because we together see it in them, who says, I have to go. I have to go. And we say, you don't have to go. We get to send. And when we send you, every piece of who we are goes with you. And you will know if you're going across the street or around the world, you are not going alone. We want to send the best. And I want us to get better and better and better at sending. Let's pray together. It's a weird message to be able to offer any kind of a response to. But I I want to say this. You can go ahead and play the music, it's fine. I want to say this, I, I, I believe deeply in every fiber that I, I believe sincerely and wholeheartedly, I believe God wants to call some of you to go. To plant a church, to be a missionary, or to walk next door. And what takes courage is not a commitment to something that somebody else has to do. What takes courage is actually doing the thing that God is sending you to do. I also believe that the only reason any of us can be sent is because God sent His Son. And I want to invite you to put your faith in Him this morning. Somebody here may need to give their life to Jesus. Somebody else here needs to stop looking at their belly button and kicking the dirt. Or looking up at the stars and just wishing that the moment would move on. And instead, dig in and say, God has put me in this moment for a reason and for a purpose. It doesn't make things less difficult. It makes them more meaningful. And you have a family here that loves you and will walk with you. I'm gonna pray, I trust you all to listen to the Spirit and to respond as he leads. God, thanks. Thanks for sending Jesus. Thank you for the testimonies that we got to see in this video of all these churches saying that a big part of who they are and what they do is because we have been an encouragement to them. What a gift to get to be Barnabas to so many different churches. To get to give away a little bit of what you have put into our hands that you would trust us to do that. Conform us into the image of Jesus. Help us to grow our capacity for sending. Have your way in this church family. And let all of our values be something that live inside of us. Not just hang on a wall somewhere. As you continue in this moment of personal prayer and reflection, I wanna remind you of a few things that if you wanna give, you can do that through our app or in the box on the table over there. The elements for the Lord's Supper are available. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, I encourage you to take that together and wanna to remind you of the significance of it. It's a proclamation that Jesus died for you Those of you living in unrepentant sin should take a moment to confess and repent before you take it. Because the Bible says those who take it in an unworthy manner fall subject to judgment. By taking it, you are making a proclamation to everyone around you. I believe in what Jesus has done for me and I wanna honor it and remember it to keep it at the forefront of everything that's going on in your life. And then I wanna invite you to come and pray with me or to come and pray with Stephen or to come and pray with Josh. We'll be available in the back, on the side. You just come find us. Anything going on in your life, we'll walk with you through it. And then in a few moments, Sarah and the band are gonna come back up. They're gonna lead us in some more worship. We sing because we believe, we sing until we believe. We celebrate who Jesus is together. We do it together. As the Spirit leads, you respond. The moment's yours.